0: My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm your host, MC Ashley, Christian Ashley. I go by many names that if this is your first episode, you just happen to be looking around and you saw that we were covering Genesis, well, Welcome. Very happy to have you here. We just go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the entire Bible. We've completed Luke and Romans, and now we're starting in the book of Genesis, the very beginning of Scripture. And I am super excited. I don't know how you guys are feeling. I'm, I'm ready to get into this and get some insight and see where God has us. And let's just do it. But before we actually get into chapter one proper, let's set our scene here as best as possible. For a time in history where, as you're going to find out along the way, we don't know exactly when things are happening, what's going on there. So let us look at Genesis. Now, that word Genesis, it comes from the Greek and it means origin, which is a very apt name for a book describing the origins of the earth, the people in it, and how we ended up in the fallen state that we remain in to this day. So there you go for that. It's a wondrous book full of a lot of stories, a lot of things you're going to have to wrestle with is some very unpleasant things that happen in this book. Things that show the insight on humanity of where we're going, where we were, how we continue to fall to this day. And like things haven't changed that much, people. But it's all good because what this does is helps us go, now, how can I stop that from happening? How can I be better? How can I learn from this? Now, Genesis, like the rest of the Pentateuch, the Pentateuch being the first five books of the Bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, as far as we are aware, were written by Moses and given to the people as they were traveling to the Promised Land. Now, originally, there may have been a document that Moses specifically wrote himself, but more than likely, given that the Jews, who, like many nations and people groups around them, were taught orally, then the primary way that these stories were handed down were more than likely from teacher to student until the teacher was satisfied that the student could, from memory, repeat everything exactly as it had been taught to him. We do see in the rest of the Pentateuch Moses being told by God specifically to write things down, and that's one of the major reasons why a lot of uh, scholars do believe that Moses is the original author of Genesis. There are some anachronisms in here along the way, but they're only anachronisms that, as we have studied history, we go, oh, mm way and as they do come in, I don't want to like brush over them. like I will bring them up. like one thing I'll think of is the Philistines apparently appearing before they're supposed to uh, see like uh, Abraham owning camels before uh, camels were supposedly domesticated. So when we get to those, like I will bring those up because there are detractors out there who like rightly so, will bring that as a criticism against mosaic authorship if you don't look at everything in context. So that's where I stand. Now this book was probably written (laughs) there's a very long time frame, we've got to sort through here. And since like when it was originally written down or simply spoken aloud for the first time, we're not entirely sure. We have our best guesses, and chances are, like, a lot of the story may have even been known to the Israelites before they left Egypt. They're just passed down from family to family, like, hey, you know, there was this guy, Jacob, and he had all these kids, and weirder result of that, and you know, God created the heavens, we worship God, and like, they may have known some of that, but like, uh, as far as it actually being written down, more than likely, especially when they were enslaved, the Israelites would not have had the capability of, you know, using papyrus and putting their words down there, especially with, even as Hebrew was growing as a language, like, however many people were actually literate, probably not that many, especially at that point in time in history. But... God did see fit to allow Moses to put it all down in one place so that the truth could be known. And as far as like exactly when it was written, if Moses is the author, which I am saying he is, this would have happened from anywhere, and I hate that I'm saying this, but it's a broad range, anywhere from about 1446 BC to about 1200 BC, (laughs) which as you know, is a very long amount of time. And there are many reasons for this. We'll get into a lot more when we do actually study Exodus after we're done with Genesis of like when in history is this actually occurring? There are arguments all over the place for, you know, which pharaoh was in charge. And that's one reason we don't know exactly when because the pharaoh is not named specifically outside of being called pharaoh. So when was it written? I kind of take the more, the further away as possible. So like closer to 1446 maybe, but at the end of the day, we can't really be sure. Uh, outside of these records, we don't have a lot of the Hebrew people in Egypt, so it's very difficult to like parse exactly when these are happening. So, as annoying as it is to me to have such a wide open time frame, that's where we're at. But enough of that. We're moving on. We're going to get into Genesis one proper, starting with verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let me repeat that. In the beginning, God created. The heavens and the earth. Just with that one sentence, we we have so much to talk about. And let's set up everything as best as possible, knowing that like ultimately we won't be able to answer everything satisfactorily for everyone listening. like I get it. There are things in here. you're gonna go, wait, what what about this? And there's just not enough evidence to say like concretely, this is exactly where we're at. Now I'm gonna have things I'm very strongly holding convictions on. And I will admit those when they come around. But I do want to give everyone their due, um, what's what I'm looking for here? Not due process, more like I want to give them their time to shine. I want to show all the ways people think things happen in creation or all that. That way, not to like mock anyone openly, but to like give them their due diligence maybe is what I'm looking for here. We also see that the earth itself has a beginning. It wasn't always here. Instead, only God existed until he decided to create. Now, how long was this? How God? How long was God alone? Did the moment God himself as a being outside of time, he's always been here. Like, when did you decide to do this? What? What? How does time work with someone like God who doesn't exist in a way that you and I understand it? That's one of those things that I just don't know. And I'm going to go with the point that I think that God just did it whenever he wanted to. And yeah, sure. And that may be an unsatisfying answer for some, but it happened when he did. (laughs) That's the answer. Because there was no time before God decided, especially as we understand it, until God made time. So there we are. Like we're giving next to nothing here, especially. Uh, of how long God existed alone, or if angels were created before this, or if Satan's rebellion against God started before this, or if that's something that happened after the earth was created. We don't know. And unfortunately, when it comes to the chronology of these spiritual events, we have very little evidence to go on. I mean, for all we know, God didn't create the angels until after creating the earth first. But regardless, like, let us say one thing to help put our minds at ease. There are going to be a lot of questions brought up in our discussion of creation and how it works. And we are not going to have answers for all of them. And that's okay. Repeat that with me. That's okay. I'm saying that to you. I'm saying that to me as someone who likes definitive things, like let me just bullet point them. Okay. I got it. That's okay. Not to have that bullet point list. God has given us, given us enough information in order to trust him, and to see the joy that he took in creating the world so that we might inhabit it with him. But it's okay to ask those questions. I'm not saying it to shut that down discussion like you can't ask these things. No, it's like, look, there comes a certain point where things have to be taken on faith. And that's where we're at here. Now, continuing with the first one, we see that God himself is referred to in the original Hebrew as Elohim. Now, I'm going to try and bring up the Hebrew as much as possible when I actually understand it... Like I wasn't the best Hebrew student in the world. If you guys have been following for a while, you know, that's definitely never been my thing. Like, thank God Greek is so much closer to English as I'm in that class right now. I can handle it a lot better. But now Elohim in Hebrew is a masculine plural description of God. And that has been used by some Christians to showcase early signs of the Trinity right to the very beginning of Scripture. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with this idea, as God is three in one, and he has always been so. But to say definitively that this is the case, like this specific verse, isn't perhaps the best way to start our knowledge of the Trinity. Perhaps the Elohim used here is best understood as referring, excuse me, as pertaining to God, referring to himself as the royal we. There's a... You're typically, back in the day, you'd have monarchs talking in that sense of, uh, we are not amused uh, to go to Queen Victoria in that respect. It's like there's no actual we there. It's just her. But the actual, what's what I'm looking for here? The totality of monarchy, of being an absolute ruler, makes them, in that sense, they can use language that sounds a little above you. Does that make sense? That's probably where God is referring to himself. But I'm not saying that to discredit the idea. It could very well be a call to the Trinity, and we'll get to that in a moment. And let us not forget that we do have other scripture pointing to Jesus being involved with creation, as we see in John 1, 1 through 3, wherein in the NSAB, we hear that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. So right there, the very beginning, Jesus is involved. We see that through other scriptures as well. We'll get to the Holy Spirit when we get to verse 2. As we'll do right now. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, we see here in verse two, before the heavens and earth were fully crafted, they existed in a void like state. God took his time creating existence when he easily could have done it all in one moment. You know, that in and of itself is miraculous, but likewise, so is his decision to make it over what some would say it was a seven day span. Now, uh, however, there are, as we will note, once we get to verse three, there is enough time in between verses two and three. That could suggest that this all didn't happen within the span of a single day, and there could be an untold amount of time in between the actual first day of creation and the shaping of the formless earth. That's something that's a, uh, one of the the gap arguments people do have for this. And we'll get into that more in the chapter. Well, when we get into chapter two, I'll try and present all those arguments as best as possible. We have a lot to go through in just chapter one alone, so I can't do that to you. I- I'm unloading a lot to you. I did throw the Trinity at you, and I'm about to do it again right here. So. Uh, Good luck with that. And we also see here that the Holy Spirit was present in the construction of reality. We see the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now that we've met all three members of the Trinity, let us talk about them briefly. This is just an overview. This isn't like the one and done. You will understand the Trinity after this, because guess what? I don't understand the Trinity. Not completely. I'm working on it, but my human mind can only go so far. So don't feel ashamed if your eyes go cross-eyed at this or you don't get it like you're in good company. It's okay. But first, let us establish things that they are not. They are not separate beings. They are not gods. But instead, they are one God expressing himself through different roles. This is not and has never been polytheistic. This isn't something invented by later Christian writers, but is instead something that God revealed about himself over time in Scripture that was given a name that comes from outside of Scripture. You will never find the words, the Trinity found anywhere in Scripture. You know why? Because they don't exist there. So we had to, as we're studying the Bible, as we're learning about God's true nature, realize, oh, well, all these three, these three entities, they seem like, Maybe they're separate, but no, they actually seem like they're all together. How does that work? And that's when people who are a lot smarter than me, thank God, came along and helped establish what we now call the Trinity. Not because they themselves came up with that, but because it was always present here. They we just needed a word to help describe it that wasn't used within the text. Now let's get to the Trinity proper. We have God the Father as Creator and the One who leads. Then we have Jesus the Son a non-created being who has always existed with God in unison, who came to us humans to reveal the truth of God's divine nature and to lead the charge to save men from themselves. Then we have our final member, the Holy Spirit, who serves as the comforter of men and is the one who carries out the work of the deific designs of God. Now, all three members are co-equal in that one is not above or more important than the other, and they are co-eternal in that they have always existed and always will exist. Now, your brain's okay after all that. I know I just threw a lot at you. And that's just like the bare bones of the Trinity. It's a lot. And if you guys do have questions, feel, feel free to reach out. I'm more than willing to talk further about this. But in creation itself, we see the perfect unity of God presented as Trinity in that every part of God does his role well and without conflict. The spirit doesn't say, man, I shouldn't be here over the earth right now. Nothing's happening. Jesus isn't like, oh, well, we could be doing something better. It's like, no, they are all working in perfect unity, giving us an example of how we should be in the church as humanly possible as that is to attain. And we also see here, in the process of crafting the initially formless earth, God has created water, something that we can imagine and helps craft the image of his continued creation of earth. God is like, in these verses, planting the seeds to help our mind comprehend what's going on as best as our minds can. Now let's get into the next part. Verses three through five. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Just as simply as he made everything else, God speaks light into existence. Now, we'd notice that God did not create the darkness in this way because it already existed. And nor does he seem to think of it as evil. Now, naturally, in a human point of view, we'd go darkness bad. Well for many separate reasons. Like we, plenty of people are afraid of the dark. I don't like the dark particularly. I'm not afraid like I was as a child, but I'm more afraid of like, okay, what's lurking in there that I have to protect myself from. It is natural for a human to go, I need light so I can see. You know why? Because that's how we see. (laughs) And it's natural for us to think darkness is always bad, but no, darkness has its place in the world. And some would say that because God called the light good and doesn't call the darkness good, that means he despises it. But instead, he has offered us a gift in light to enhance the place of the darkness. Now, light is still ultimately viewed by God as better than, it seems, than the darkness in that he provides light in the darkness at night for us to see, as we'll see later on in Genesis But darkness and light have their place in creation. However, light is given more praise because of the good associated with it. And God even blesses both light and darkness by giving them names, showing his power and authority over them. So they both have their place. Light is a wondrous thing. Darkness is a wondrous thing. Now, before anyone accuses me of going full Zayn or like, no, 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 I'm not saying darkness as an evil good. I'm saying darkness as in the physical state. That happens in the absence of light is not inherently an evil thing. And we also notice here in these verses the first literal day happens here, uh, if that is how we interpret it. Now, the Hebrew word used to describe day in in Genesis is yom, which is the Hebrew singular form, and it simply means day, as in a literal day. Now, obviously, there's been huge debate over whether this is meant literally or if yom is being used figuratively to help an ancient audience understand what's going on. Now, that's not a bad argument to make. I say that as someone who believes in the six literal days and then a seventh literal day of rest. And we've only been in the earth for however many thousands of years. But there is still a place for arguments that say very different things than that. There's a place for the argument of the Big Bang happening. Oh, goodness gracious. What is it? 14... 15 million years, no, no, um, it was a billion years ago. That would be completely wrong to say millions. And the earth being formed 4.6 billion years ago, like there's an argument to be made for that. Now, as I look at scripture, I don't see that argument, but I understand how someone can get there based on a science that we have as much as we understand the world around them. But like I did say earlier, once we finish uh, Genesis 2, or even in the midst of it, probably I will be going through the various arguments about how the earth was created and do my best to give each its due. Verses six through eight. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Now in this day, what has happened? Water has now been separated into the vaporous water found within the sky and the waters of the earth, which still does not have its land masses yet. No, we are going to have to wait a day for that. And we see God using water as he should as an immensely important creative force in Genesis and in our own lives. Without water, life as we know and understand it cannot exist. We are carbon-based life forms, and the way that happens is we need water in order to survive. Some things can go without water for a long time, but they still need it in order to work. There could very well be um, an alien species out there or a type of life that we haven't discovered, maybe silicone-based or what have you, that doesn't need water in the same way that we do, or maybe doesn't need it at all. But as far as we understand things, as far as much as we know, being only on this one planet, we haven't gone out to see the rest of the galaxy yet and beyond, we need water in order to survive. And also notice that God allowed the water to be made first in this way so that when the land arrives later, the vegetation and the animals can utilize it so that when everyone is gathered together in creation, the ecosystem of the earth can thrive. God cares about how things work. God is methodical in that sense. He establishes boundaries of how the rules work. And he's the only person who gets to do that because he's the only person capable of creating these rules and boundaries and creating the things he's making rules and boundaries around. Next up, we'll be going into verses 9 through 13. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. Oh, look, come on, page. There we go. Each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Here with the creation of the land and the introduction of the sea, we see God continuing on his journey to just outdo himself over and over again. Like he spoke everything into existence and he keeps going and he makes more and he makes more. And God, having seen that the works, this works as he intended, then calls it good. The earth as it was meant to be is good. We are not created to think that the world we live in was ever intended to be filled with evil and sin and destruction, and we'll see how that happens in later chapters of Genesis. But at this point in history, the earth is called good by God. The earth is good. The earth is meant for good. Even our fallen state, the earth may be corrupted by the presence of sin. But God still intends that earth to be done and used for good. Now, next up, we see that God creates vegetation without sunlight, but with water to sustain it. So you may notice those people out there who study biology, that's not something that should work. So remember, there is light because God created light. But also recall that the earth has not fallen yet. So vegetation doesn't necessarily have to work the way it does now in a fallen, destructive state as it could then when things were perfectly designed. God himself seems to be the sustainer of the vegetation at this point and the sole source of light, but at the end of the day, we simply don't know. How do I know the plants survive? Because God said they did, because things go on in later verses, but the plants are still around. How is it possible they survive when, as we understand it, plants need light to grow, they need water to grow? Don't know. But it does seem like God is the source of their sustainability right now. And like I said, remember, we are dealing with an unfallen world. Sin has not entered the picture yet, which could show us why they're still around, even though as, like I said earlier, as we understand it, they should not. Verses 14 through 19. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the, uh, excuse me, let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Continuing his process, God, with simple words, orders the sun and moon to appear and to watch over the earth alongside the stars in the sky. Let us not downplay that, how amazing that is. I've never met a single person who can manipulate reality in the same way that God can to say something will be in existence, and it is, to have the authority to do that. That person doesn't exist because only he is God. And even before the fall, we see that God arranged for there to be light, and to be seen in the midst of darkness, even in the night sky, unless you live in a city that's heavily with light pollution, well, there's going to be a light generated from that. But in the sky, there are stars. There's the moon. We're going to be able to see some of it because he has given us a gift. He could have just made it all dark. He could have just said the sun will be here during the day and you'll have to deal with the darkness at night. No, he gave us something when he didn't have to give us anything at all. And not only that, but God then organizes these celestial objects to help guide the people of earth in the foretelling of seasons and times, so that we may prepare for those days in advance. God has already prepared for the seasons. He's already prepared for when humans are going to need to be inside more often, or they're going to need to be, need to be outside more often, or they're going to need to be at home at this time of the day. God has always already thought these things out because he is perfect and he is loving and he is giving a way for us to live in a world that is in its fallen state, knowing this is going to happen. He's given us a way to live in that hostile world before that happens, which shows immense foresight and love to me. Next up, verses 20 through 23. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the giant sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters uh, swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Here God has created animals first To fill the earth and spread life in a form separate from the vegetation. From the land to the sea, God has filled this world with magnificent creations for us to appreciate, watch over, and love. Also, he blesses these non-sapient beings. That means they're not able to think rationally like you and I are so that they might be fruitful and multiply, showcasing his love, even for those who cannot ever love him back as a rational, sapient human being can. Does that blow anyone else's mind? That God extended that love to things that will never love him back in the same way that we can. That just shows the immense love of God to create something that, unlike us, just can't love him the same way. And yet he did it anyway, knowing how it pleases him, To make it, and for us to be in a diverse world that we live in, to have all these wondrous species to look at, and appreciate, and study, and look after. However, God doesn't create every single animal on this day, choosing to have humans share it in the later verses, but humans ultimately being the last day he creates. And we'll find that out in verses 24 through 31. I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Now here, God finishes out the regular animals by creating livestock, the creeping things, you know, your bugs and insects and stuff like that, and beasts of the earth. This list isn't meant to be comprehensive, including that last one there as my watch goes off. That's lovely. But instead, it is meant to help the listeners of the original writer get a sense of the totality of God's creative work. Like I think the example used uh, – By one of the things I was reading, like God did not really describe what a cat would be in that situation. It's not livestock. It doesn't really creep upon the earth. You know, it's not a fish. It's not a bird, but it's still there. So how does that fit? And like, no, this is just meant as a way to help them understand, give them an idea of what's going on. Now, we also see here, God has reached and created his magnum opus, man in his own image. Everything was a buildup to this moment in time, a being that could look at God, ask God questions and worship God. Now, what does that mean to be created in the image of God? I mean, do you and I, do we look like God? I mean, more than likely, no. But what this does refer to is that we are made in the likeness of God. We have attributes and mentalities that are close to him that he left behind as kind of a, like a, a trademark or like a signature of his creating us, much in the same sense that, you know, an author can make a book or a poem in their own image, or a painter can craft a mosaic in their own image. I mean, regardless, God intentionally designed us to be like him in some respects without being gifted with his divinity, nor should we ever seek it. We are meant to be separate from him in that regard. But he still made us to be able to understand him in ways that no other creature can, to love Him in a way that no other creature can. That's love. That's God creating a being for His good and for our good. Now, in 26, we do see us return. Excuse me. We do see a plural return, I should say, in that God refers to Himself as us. Now, in contrast to verse 2, This seems to be an actual reference to the Trinity in that God continues to use plural language to describe himself and that he refers to himself as us, our, and our in the same verse. So as opposed to only using it once when you would probably just say that once in a sentence, you wouldn't continue to use we, 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 or something like that in speech, but to use us, our, our. That tells me this is God speaking in unity with himself to Jesus, to the Holy Spirit, All three of those uh, beings, same, goodness gracious, all three of those aspects of himself working together, let us make man in our image. That means you and I, we have the Holy Spirit. He is in us. We have Jesus. He is, we are made in his image. We are made in the image of God, the father, all three in one. Now we also see God describes his creations as male and female, but in the chronology of events. Eve doesn't seem to have been made yet. We will later see her creation in chapter two. But this part is meant as an overview as humanity as a whole being created in Adam, our father. Now, Adam is not named as such yet. But the word, the Hebrew word used here for humanity is Adam or Adam. Now, Adam is used to describe both. It can be used to describe the name Adam, Adam. It can be used to describe men as in just males. Or it can be used to describe humanity as a whole, which means male and female. So we see with the use of female there that this is used as a sense of man is being made. Overview. There you go. And with that, we also see we have a perfect understanding of God's intent for men and women as his creations without him uplifting anything else above those two absolutes. Like nothing rises above that. God said, you two, man, woman. You are above everything else. That is not me. And I have gifted that to you. You have done nothing to deserve this. Like nothing's been done to say, oh, well, they they clearly need it, God. Like, no, he did it and gave it anyway to beings who didn't deserve it. And not only that, he didn't stop with just simply blessing humanity and creating them. Excuse me, uh, just simply creating them. He blessed them too and shows his superior love for us by offering higher blessings than those he gave the animals. We are meant to rule over the earth, working alongside God to cr- guide his creations. That is something you don't see the animals called to do. They're meant to be ruled over. However, humans have been incredibly irresponsible, sullying the good world that God has left us, uh, excuse me, has left us even in the midst of our sin. Like, Even knowing what we would do, God still left us in charge. Now, some may decry this verse as being used and exploited for environmentalism, but it is made blatantly clear just how seriously God takes our management of the earth. And if we destroy it through ceaseless pollution or what have you, we are failing in our job to be the ones who are stewarding the mighty work of God. Now, it is impossible to live on the earth and never once pollute it. It's impossible. You know why? because we live in a fallen world. But it is always possible for us to work to fight against the pollution we create and others create, and to simply give up on that shows how much we don't care for the one planet in existence that we are aware of and have access to that supports life. We've got nowhere else to go. Like, you see those people out there, you say, oh, you're just using this first for your environmentalism. Like, no, 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 no. I'm not a, anywhere close to being a hippie by any way, shape, or form of that, and thank God for that. But if I don't care about the earth, I'm an idiot. Like then you take it the ultra liberal way. You can take it ultra, ultra conservative way of oh, we don't, nothing matters and we can do whatever we want. No, that's not how it needs to be. There needs to be a balance there. There needs to be a way of us showing support for the world that God has gifted us to be in charge of. Because we are being very poor stewards if we don't, because uh, he could just have easily. And righteously destroyed the earth, and he could still do that to this day, and be righteous to do so, because the world is filled with sin. But he doesn't to give us time to repent and be faithful. That's something we should look to. It's like, oh, how much trash do I make a day? Like, how many times do I actually recycle? How many times could I just simply, you know, cut the rings around? My soft drink, so they don't end up around a sea turtle's neck and it dies. Like where has what is that one thing God is putting on your heart? How can you be better about that? Figure it out. I'm certainly not perfect. I'm never gonna be, but I'm working on it. But no, God has given us a responsibility to look after the earth. And finally, God looks on his mighty works and sees that not only is it good, but that it is very good. God is proud of his craftsmanship, and he should be, for no one else could ever come close to him. And we should take heart, in fact, in the fact that God has declared us very good, as we are a part of creation too. That's something to have hope in. That is something to say, wow, God looked at me and said, I am very good. God said the same thing to you. And with that, That is the end of Genesis 1. Thank you for listening, everyone. If you have a chance, just leave a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice. If you're interested in my fiction writing, you can find my works at starvingwritersguild.com or on Amazon by searching the name MC Ashley. If you're interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then please check out the other members of the Anazal Ministry podcasting network. You can contact me at letnothingmoviepodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music that he adds to the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you in accordance to His will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.